0: Christian influences on the common law. The emergence of the English common law system occurred in an age and in a culture steeped in Christian theology, Christian morals, and a Christian understanding of the meaning and value of life. The influence of the Christian worldview was determinative for social institutions as well as individual lives. Men were born into the church, married at the church, and buried by the church. They lived under the pervasive influence of Christian ideals and institutions, from the cradle to the grave. To be excommunicate was not only to be outside the church, but outside society also. Ideas of justice, morality, right and wrong were naturally conceived in terms of Christian beliefs and informed by the content of Christian revelation, the Bible, as expounded by the church. Hence, as Berman argues, the Basic institutions, concepts and values of Western legal systems have their sources in religious rituals, liturgies and doctrines of the 11th and 12th centuries, reflecting new attitudes towards death, sin, punishment, forgiveness and salvation, as well as new assumptions concerning the relationship of the divine to the human and of faith to reason So pervasive was the influence of Christianity upon the development of Western legal thought Berman calls Western legal science a secular theology, which to our largely unbelieving society today often makes no sense because its theological presuppositions are no longer accepted. The validity of our legal system rests on religious presuppositions that dominated the age in which it was formed and therefore It is those religious presuppositions that give meaning to our law and to our understanding of justice. The attitudes and assumptions that inform our legal system, are Christian and our legal institutions and values cannot be understood properly apart from Christianity. Furthermore, in the medieval period, morality and the law were not so sharply distinguished as they are today. And, since Christianity was the universal religion in England, it was declared that Any law is, or of right ought to be, according to the law of God. And, even after case law came to dominate the common law system during the 17th and 18th centuries, and the authority of precedent was generally accepted, the doctrine of precedent was still subject to the reservations of reason and the law of God. According to Berman, the influence of Christian doctrines upon the development of Western legal science proceeded by means of a process in which the legal metaphors and analogies of the 11th and 12th centuries became the legal concepts of the 13th century. Since these legal metaphors and analogies were taken mainly from the Christian theology of the West, the legal concepts of the 13th century embodied the theology of Western Christendom in the period beginning with the Papal Revolution. Berman lists five doctrines that he considers to have had a formative influence on Western conceptions of justice and the development of Western legal science, the Last Judgment and Purgatory, the Sacraments of Penance and the Eucharist, and, most important of all, Anselm's doctrine of the Atonement. Berman argues that the Christian doctrine of the Last Judgment acquired a new significance during the 11th century that was reflected in the creation of a new holy day, All Souls Day. All Souls Day was a day to celebrate the community of all souls who had ever lived, or would live, who were visualized as trembling before the judge on the last day of history. The liturgy of All Souls Day, along with the doctrine of purgatory, writes Berman, provided an important link between theology and jurisprudence in Western Christendom. Sin acquired a new legal definition, in terms of specific acts that were considered wrong and that must be paid for by temporal suffering, in contrast with the older view, which saw sin more in terms of separation from God. The kinds and degrees of punishment applicable to those guilty of these sinful acts were to be established first by divine law revealed in the Bible, and secondly, by natural law revealed in the hearts and minds of men. These punishments were to be further defined by church law, which was itself to be tested by divine law. The doctrine of purgatory, which began to receive greater emphasis during this period, served to accentuate this tariff of punishments for specific sins. This, in turn, led to a reinterpretation of penance, which in the process acquired a strong sacramental character as punishment for sinful acts, in contrast to the earlier understanding of penitential works as a means of reconciliation with God, the Church and the offended party. Most significant of all in this period, however, according to Berman, was the legal implications of Anselm's doctrine of the Atonement. It was Anselm's doctrine of the Atonement that laid the foundations for the new jurisprudence. Despite its deficiencies, Anselm's doctrine of atonement represented the most satisfactory treatment of the atonement that had appeared up to that time. It was this theory, writes Berman, that first gave Western theology its distinctive character and its distinctive connection with Western jurisprudence. The significance of Anselm's doctrine for the developing legal thought of the time lay in the teaching that God cannot forgive man's sin without satisfaction being made for that sin, and that without much satisfaction, man must be punished accordingly. Christ made satisfactions for man's sin, but that satisfaction was not understood by Anselm in terms of punishment for crime, Christ being the substitute, but rather in terms of penance in the older sense, that is, in the sense of works of contrition leading to reconciliation of the victim with the offender. Although Anselm's doctrine was an advance and pointed in the right direction, it fell a long way short of the penal substitution theory that emerged in the Reformation. However, Berman argues that Anselm's view of the atonement ultimately depended on another premise which was not fully articulated, namely that a punishment, and not only a penitential satisfaction, was required by divine justice not for man's original sin, but for personal sins, actual sins, committed by baptised Christians. The implication was that, although Christ had made satisfaction for man's original sin, liability for the actual sins of Christians remained and must be borne by the individual sinner, but that these actual sins could be expiated by the sinner himself through punishments in this life and suffering in purgatory from a biblical perspective, this theory fails on two counts. First of all, the least of sins is a transgression against the authority of the whole moral law, and therefore, to sin at one point, no matter how venial this sin may be judged by men, is to incur the full condemnation of the law, to become guilty of all, as we are told in scripture. James 2.10. Accordingly, man cannot by his own suffering or works make expiation for the least of his actual sins, though he must of course repent, that is, turn away from his sin as opposed to doing penance for it. A very different matter. Secondly, except in matters of rebellion against legitimate authority and capital offences, the Bible is concerned primarily not with punishment of the offender, but rather with restitution of order and compensation for the victim. In this sense, the Bible is nearer the older view, common in the Anglo-Saxon period, when crime was not conceived as an offence against a political order or society generally, but rather against the victim and his kin, who must be compensated by the offender if he is to escape their wrath. The change in emphasis after the Papal Revolution reflected the growth of centralised political states in which crime is conceived primarily as being committed against the political order, a breach of the king's peace, or against society generally. In this respect, the growth of the centralised political state was a backward step, and yet it was the emergence of that kind of political system that created the conditions necessary for the development of English common law. However, this is not to say that the concept of compensation was lost. Indeed, the almost universal remedy at common law is the award of damages to the injured party. The common law, therefore, maintained a strong element of continuity with old English law going back to pre-Norman times. But there was a shift of emphasis. As Berman writes, The new concepts of sin and punishment based on the doctrine of the Atonement, were not justified in Germanic terms of reconciliation as an alternative to vengeance, or in Platonic terms of deterrence and rehabilitation, or in Old Testament terms of the covenant between God and Israel. Though elements of all three of these theories were present, the main justification given by Anselm and his successors in Western theology was the concept of justice itself. Justice required that every sin, crime, be paid for by temporal suffering, that the suffering, the penalty, be appropriate to the sinful act and that it vindicate, avenge the particular law that was violated. As St. Thomas Aquinas said almost two centuries after Anselm's time, both criminal and civil offences require payment of compensation to the victim, but since crime, in contrast to tort, is a defiance of the law itself, punishment And not merely reparation must be imposed as the price for the violation of the law. This retribution theory of justice passed into Western legal theory. It was based on the premise that a tribute, that is, a price, must be paid to vindicate the law. The new doctrine of atonement had other implications also. It led to an emphasis on the immoral nature of crime, since the criminal was a sinner. But, since all men shared a common sinful nature, this, in turn, mitigated the element of moral superiority associated with retributive theories of justice. Also, the belief in the moral equality of all the participants in legal proceedings provided a foundation for scientific investigation of the state of mind of the accused. Finally, writes Berman, The doctrine of the Atonement gave a universal significance to human justice, by linking the penalty imposed by a court for violation of a law to the nature and destiny of man, his search for salvation, his moral freedom, and his mission to create on earth a society that would reflect the divine will. Christianity also influenced the development of secular law via canon law, which exerted an influence over both the legal theory and procedure of secular law. The laws of the Church during the first millennium of its history, writes Berman, bore the strong influence of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. From the Bible, the Church derived the authority of the Ten Commandments and of many other moral principles formulated as divine commands. Beyond that, the Bible transmitted a pervasive belief in a universal order governed by the God who was both supreme legislator and supreme judge. As heir to the tradition of Israel, the Church took seriously the numinous character of law. Its pervasiveness in the divine order of creation... Moreover, many specific rules of conduct contained in the Old and New Testaments, as well as many biblical examples and metaphors, were carried over into ecclesiastical canons. The laws of the Church also bore the influence of Roman law and Germanic folklore, but these were reinterpreted in terms of the Christian religion and moulded according to biblical ideals. For instance, while the Church initially accepted the Germanic tradition of trial by ordeal, the clergy who often officiated over the trials and performed religious rituals connected with them, were inclined to arrange the results so as to conform to what they believed justice required. For example, in trial by hot iron, in which a hot iron was placed in the defendant's hand for a short while, then the hand bandaged up and inspected a few days later, if there was no blistering he was innocent, the priests often heated the iron only moderately, so that no blistering would be likely to occur this conformed with the biblical principle involved in the only trial by ordeal known in the Bible, the case of a wife being accused by her husband of unfaithfulness without any evidence, Numbers five eleven 31 which required that God intervene miraculously to prove the defendant's guilt, not her innocence. Eventually, the Fourth Lateran Council, 1215, forbade priests to officiate at or perform religious rituals in connection with ordeals, and this effectively brought the practice to an end. In this way, even primitive Germanic customs such as trial by ordeal were subjected by the church to the overriding influence of biblical principles. After the papal revolution, canon law became much more systematized. Furthermore, the Pope began to assert the right to create new laws to meet the needs of the time. This led to a summarizing and periodizing of the law into old and new law and their integration into a unified system. This meant also that the law was a developing body of rules, not a fossilized rigid code. These interrelated elements: 1, the periodization into old law and new law, 2. The summarization and integration of the two as a unified structure, and 3. The conception of the whole body of law as moving forward in time in an ongoing process are defining features of the Western legal tradition. Canon law, therefore, was the first modern Western legal system, and as such it provided at many points a model for the developing secular legal systems of the West – Another example of the way the Church transformed existing Germanic judicial proceedings so that they reflected Christian principles was the oath. Oath swearing, or compurgation, was a pre-Christian element in Germanic law. In the older Germanic tradition, the defendant swore an oath to his innocence, and other oath helpers who functioned something like character witnesses also swore oaths in his innocence. These oaths were long formulas that had to be repeated exactly without any deviation, by those using them. The efficacy of this procedure lay entirely in the ability of those swearing to perform the ritual correctly. If they failed, this testified to the defendant's guilt. If they succeeded, it showed his innocence. Oath swearing, in this sense, was used by the defendant to purge himself of the charges against him. The canonists, however, Developed the judicial procedure whereby the judge interrogated the parties in a case in accordance with principles of reason and conscience in order to establish the truth. In the ecclesiastical courts, the parties involved and the witnesses swore an oath in advance that they would answer the questions put to them truthfully. The oath, therefore, acquired its modern sense first in the ecclesiastical courts. The ecclesiastical courts further introduced the modern idea of representation in which the parties involved in an action were represented by professional legal counsel who argued their cases for them. Again, this development, writes Berman, was closely linked to theological concepts. According to Berman, this emphasis on judicial investigation was associated not only with a more rational procedure for eliciting proof, but also with the development of concepts of probable truth and of principles of relevancy and materiality. Rules were elaborated to prevent the introduction of superfluous evidence, matters already ascertained. Impertinent evidence, matters having no effect on the case. Obscure and uncertain evidence, matters from which no clear inference can be drawn. Excessively general evidence, matters from which obscurity arises. And evidence contrary to nature, matters which it is impossible to believe. All this contrasted sharply with the older Germanic judicial proceedings. Reason and conscience were used to overturn formalism and magic. The influence of the church and of canon law, and through these the influence of the Bible on the development of English common law, was therefore significant. The justices of the English royal courts in the 12th and 13th centuries were clergymen, Not until the late 13th and 14th centuries do professional lay judges begin to appear. It was the clerical judges who transformed the mass of ancient laws and customs into the common law system. When the clergy were no longer permitted by canon law to sit as judges in the royal courts, the creative age of our medieval law is over, write Pollock and Maitland. English law, more especially the English law of civil procedure, was rationalised under the influence of the canon law. In short, common law was Christian law. It is important that we recognise, therefore, that it was not the nature of the English people, but its public inspiration at its conversion that gave rise to the common law, which could therefore contain, as it really does contain, elements of Hebrew, Roman and ecclesiastical law. English common law was, to use the words of Eugen Rosenstock Hussey, the dowry of Christian baptism. Christianity and biblical law also exerted a significant influence via canon law upon equity. It was stated that equity applied only where the law is directly in itself against the law of God or the law of reason. Equity was administered in the court of chancery and the chancellors, being mainly ecclesiastics, derived the principles of equity from the canonists. In 1489, the Chancellor, Cardinal Morton, said, Every law should be in accordance with the law of God, and I know well that an executor who fraudulently misapplied the goods and does not make restitution will be damned in hell, and to remedy this is in accordance with conscience, as I understand it. As A.K.R. Coralfley explains, The Chancellor's tended naturally to derive their ideas from the conceptions of the canonists. These conceptions depended upon the theory that the law of God governed the universe, and hence his law and the law of nature and reason, which were nearly synonymous, predominated over the rules of any state. A human law could not be valid in contradiction to divine law. In The Doctor and Student, these two propositions are clearly stated When the law eternal or the will of God is known to His creatures reasonable by the light of natural understanding or by the light of natural reason, that is called the law of reason. And when it is showed of heavenly revelation, then it is called the law of God. And when it is showed upon him by order of a prince or of any other secondary governor that have power to set law upon his subjects, then it is called the law of man, though originally it be made of God. For if any law made of men bind any person to anything that is against the said laws, the law of reason or the law of God, it is no law but a corruption and a manifest error. Consequently, the Chancellor arrogated to himself the right to interfere with the course of the law in a particular instance, even where the general rule was just, if according to conscience it would work against the law of God. Clearly, God's law and Christian conceptions of justice played an important part in shaping and informing not only our common law, but our whole system of justice. As an aside to our main point, it is worth noting here that the Church also provided a model for Western Christendom in another sense during the medieval period. The papacy was the first modern state. At the top of the hierarchy was the Pope. Although there were certain limitations on his power, The Pope ruled as the supreme legislator and judge over the Church, that is, he ruled as a prince. The bishops also were princes in their own diocese and had power to rule as supreme legislators and judges over their sees, subject only to the intervention of the Pope, to whom they swore an oath of allegiance. The emerging secular states of Europe reflected this type of government in their own administrations. The secular state mirrored the papacy, It is interesting to note also that, after the Reformation, when a new form of church government emerged that was based on different and more biblical principles of government, the secular states of Protestant Europe began to mirror the new form of government in their own administrations. Modern Western political theories of representative government were taken from the Reformed churches and applied to secular governments. This raises an important point – It seems that the Church has often functioned as a model that the secular authorities have imitated. Protestant Europe owes its representative form of government to the Reformation, just as medieval states mirrored in important ways the papacy in their forms of government and administration of law. The model that the Church provides for society at large is important, theologically, morally and constitutionally and administratively. When the Church fails in providing this model, the secular authorities will take their role models from elsewhere. Today we are seeing where the Church's failure to provide such a model of leadership has left us. Secular humanism, rather than the teaching of the Church, is the ideology to which our leaders look to inform their programs and their blueprints for society.